Religions, Episode 10, The Armed Peace. Last time, we saw the sudden death of the Duke of Guise during the Catholic Siege of Orléans, followed by a ceasefire and an end to hostilities. A peace was signed between the royal and Huguenot forces, and Catherine de Medici drafted an edict of pacification that permitted limited tolerance of Protestants in several cities around the kingdom. However, though the Civil War had ended, France was not at peace. If you recall back to Episode 8, Queen Elizabeth had promised aid to the Huguenots, and subsequently sent troops to occupy the port city of Le Havre. When the Prince of Condé had decided to peace out with the Queen Mother, Elizabeth refused to withdraw her troops from France until Calais had been returned to the English. On July 6th, 1563, King Charles declared war on England and sent an army north into Normandy, led by the Grand Marshal Montmorency. Both Catholics and Huguenots united to chase the English from France and fought side by side for the first time since the Civil War began. Among those who fought under Montmorency were the Prince of Condé and Dandolo, Colony's younger brother. Elizabeth viewed the actions of the Huguenots as the ultimate treachery, and she refused to support the French Protestants again for the duration of the French Wars of Religion. Can you really blame her, though? She had made the Huguenot rebellion possible by furnishing her co-religionists with gold, troops, and resources to achieve her own political goal. But now that the geopolitical winds had changed, they were now directing some of these very resources against her. That's early modern politics for you. The French troops prepared trenches around the Havre and opened fire on the town's defenses. They bombarded the city's towers and gates with artillery for an entire afternoon and into the following day. The English defenders entrenched in front of the city saw that the French cannons threatened to block their escape. They set fire to two windmills and used the smoke to cover their retreat into the city. Dandolo, who you may remember from last episode, as being in charge of the Huguenot defenses at Orléans, advanced with his soldiers against the English and took one of the towers on the outside of the defenses. The French now had the perfect vantage point to bombard the city gates, and they prepared for an assault. Over the next few days, the French artillery battered away the English defenses, and the defenders prepared for the worst. One account reported, quote, so the English found themselves distraught, not so much by the great sicknesses and necessities that they had in La Havre, than this, that since arrived from the marshal, the trench that had formerly been led up just up to the facing Boulevard Saint-Andres, advanced 2,000 feet in just four days, under a stone pier, where there was no earth to help them. In this way, they needed to cover themselves in the trench with full bags of dirt, bales of wool, and bundles of brushwood and taking wet sand from the sea and removing it to bind it all together and make it stick. End quote. Needless to say, you know you're in rough shape when you're counting on wool and wet sand to defend against heavy artillery. Soon afterward, the French tried to capture one of the city's chief fortifications, known as the Fort of the Hour. As French troops advanced toward the fort, the English attempted to sally out in a desperate push. A skirmish ensued and the English were beaten back. By now, the English were ready to consider peace. Negotiations commenced between Montmorency and the Count of Warwick, 
the leader of the English forces. The English agreed to withdraw, and were given six days to clear all British soldiers from the city. The entire siege had only lasted eight days. Elizabeth sent 1,800 reinforcements across the channel, hoping to support the city, but when they arrived, it was too late. The garrison had already rendered the Havre back to the French. Elizabeth was ready to make a peace, and an agreement was signed. Although Catherine had hoped that fighting against the English would unify the country, the wounds from the Civil War had not fully healed. Henry of Lorraine, the new Duke of Guise, blamed Admiral Coligny for the assassination of his father. Guise found no evidence for this claim other than the testimony of Poltrot, and the trial was postponed for three years. However, Henry Duke of Guise sought revenge himself, and his blood feud with Coligny officially began. With the nation at peace, and the English officially expelled from mainland Europe once again, Charles took the opportunity to announce his majority and end his regency. He now held all the power and responsibility of a king. He was 13 years old. Catherine stepped down as the official regent of France, but there is no doubt that she continued to hold sway over the king. Although most of the high nobility saw Charles IX's majority as a measure to bring further stability to the kingdom, many worried that it was premature. Funny enough, no one really argued that he was too young to govern, but some were paranoid that the king's young age would make him more susceptible to Protestantism. Now that France is officially at peace, I think that now would be a good time to zoom out and look at the whole kingdom. Although the Edict of Amboise had been signed back in March, its legitimacy was still challenged. Many magistrates viewed the Edict as too lenient towards the Protestants, and refused to implement them in their provinces, using the minority of the king to justify their actions. It should not be a surprise to listeners of this podcast that the most vocal opponents of the Edict came from the Guise family, and they gained many supporters in positions of power. The three estates of Burgundy assembled at Dijon and rejected the edict in their territory, pleading the Parlement of Paris to revoke it in all of France. It was only after threats from Catherine that they finally backed down and instituted the edict. Likewise, the crown had to send a firm declaration to the government of Languedoc in southern France to demand that they uphold the edict of pacification. However, now that King Charles had reached his majority, everyone looked to him to see if he would uphold the policies of his mother. He did, making clear that Catherine's policy of limited toleration would be followed. I say limited toleration because, remember, the edict only granted the Huguenots the most limited religious freedoms to worship in only parts of a few cities around the kingdom, and in most cities, the religion was illegal altogether. However, for some, this was not enough. While local magistrates only nominally upheld the edict, many quietly refused to enforce it. One contemporary source I found stated that the average people supported the peace and tranquility that had come to the kingdom, and that, quote, it is not, therefore, to the manner of the government, neither to the people that one could fear hereinafter. One must come to the necessity to those who are the principal authority for maintaining the laws and edicts of this kingdom, a.k.a. the magistrates and bureaucrats. 
I have no doubt that most of the common people enjoyed the newfound peace, yet paranoia continued to spread. In cities, priests preached against the Reformed religion and stirred up zeal for the Catholic Church. The Civil War had been a very destructive one, and Protestants typically destroyed relics and cathedrals in the cities they occupied. Now, Catholics ate up messages of vengeance, eager to make the Huguenots pay, with calls for violence against them. The interlude between the Civil Wars also saw a spike in blood feuds among the nobility. Duelings and honor killings had been strictly monitored and forbidden under Francis I and Henry II. But now, noble families took advantage of the weakness and inexperience of the boy king to settle old personal scores. Nobles took the law into their own hands to settle decades-old conflicts, and there were a few notable assassinations among the nobility during this time. Religious differences only heightened old family rivalries, and many feared for their lives as tensions escalated. As anxieties grew, people gathered weapons in self-defense, which is why historians often label this period as the Armed Peace. However, no rivalry loomed over France greater than the quarrel between the Guise faction and the family of Coligny. The Duke of Guise demanded blood for his father's death. I think that it is worthwhile to also examine the religious situation in France at this time. By the December of 1563, the Council of Trent finally came to an end after 20 years of convening. It was a Catholic ecumenical council overseen by the Pope that sought to address the concerns of the Protestant Reformation and to clearly define Catholic doctrine. The details of the Council of Trent are outside the scope of this podcast, but I'd like to summarize the key changes it brought to the Roman Church. First and foremost, it condemned the teachings of Protestantism and deemed all Protestants as heretics. However, it acknowledged some of the grievances of the Reformers, such as the corruption in church administration and the misuse of church positions, and put in measures to weed out this church corruption. It also gave the church the authority as the chief interpreter of the Bible, and rejected Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. It upheld traditional Catholic practices, such as iconography, the veneration of saints, and indulgences. In early 1564, ambassadors arrived from the Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor, Philip II of Spain, and the Duke of Savoy to the court of Charles IX, pleading the French king to uphold the verdict of the council and to not tolerate the Protestant heresy in his kingdom. The king politely refused these requests, stating that he wished to contain his subjects in peace in the former doctrines of the Catholic Church, and that he would not go back on his edict of pacification. Now that Charles had come of age, Catherine thought that it would be a good idea to take her son on a royal tour of France. She thought that it would be a good way for the boy king to not only get to know the varying peoples of his kingdom, but also to make sure that the edict was being enforced across the country. It was a brilliant plan, meant to compensate for the weakness of the king and the instability of the government following the Civil War, with a nationwide display of royal force. On January 24th, the king departed from Paris with the royal family and arrived at Fontainebleau on the 31st. He stayed there until March 13th, where the royal family enjoyed an array of parties celebrating the beginning of the voyage, 
and then set out towards Champagne in mid-March. The king's two younger brothers accompanied him and Catherine on the voyage, as well as ten-year-old Henry of Navarre, the son of Antoine de Bourbon. The king's entourage consisted of 15,000 men, including a military escort, princes, ambassadors, and servants, carrying tapestries and furniture. As you can imagine, lodging proved difficult for all these people throughout the length of the journey. The king mostly stayed in inns, and powerful nobles sent their agents ahead to secure a place to sleep. Housing was first come, first serve, and most people just ended up sleeping outside most of the time. The king arrived at the city of Troyes in Champagne on March 23rd, where he signed his final peace agreement with Queen Elizabeth. After three weeks in the city, he departed once again, traveling east towards Chalon. Chalon was a frontier city on the far eastern edge of the kingdom, surrounded by the clear, rolling hills for which Champagne is known. After staying six days, the king continued further east, crossing over the French border into the Duchy of Lorraine. Although in the 21st century, Lorraine is part of France, in 1564 it still belonged to the Holy Roman Empire. Charles IX visited the court of Lorraine at Bar-le-Duc to see his sister, who had married Duke Charles of Lorraine. On May 12th, the entourage left Bar-le-Duc and passed over the border back into France. They had been gone from the country for 12 days. The king then followed the French border south to the city of Dijon. Dijon is the capital of Bourgogne, or Burgundy, located in the mid-east of France. As you might recall, this region had given the queen quite a lot of pushback regarding the Edict of Pacification, and despite opposition from the regional parliament, King Charles took this time to officially register the edict in the province. He also listened to the humble requests of the government of the region. He stayed in the city five days, and then ventured south toward Lyon. The king entered the city on June 13th with a triumphal parade. Once there, Charles took a tour of Lyon's cathedrals and monasteries, most of which had been sacked by the Huguenots during the war. As a response, Charles passed an act banning all Protestantism in the city. The king stayed in Lyon for a month, meeting with many of the local nobility, and left on July 9th. He pushed further south to Chateau Roussillon, where he rested for a month. While there, he dispatched several letters re-emphasizing the Edict of Pacification after reports arrived of religious riots around the country. He also issued an edict that made January 1st the official first day of the year in France. Although it had already been long established in Paris, he found in his journey that some regions celebrated the New Year at Easter, or Christmas, as had been the case in Lyon. The fact that the king seemed unaware of this practice shows how out of touch the royal family could be with the provinces. Charles then continued to the cities of Valence and Etoile, which are down the Rhone River from Lyon in the region of Dauphiny. On September 21st, the king and his entourage arrived in the court of Venessin. Comte Venessin, as the region was called, was an enclave isolated within the Kingdom of France that was officially a part of the Papal States ruled by the Pope. Even though it was surrounded by French territory on all sides, being part of the Papal States 
meant it was technically a different country. So this was Charles' second time leaving France so far on his trip. He stayed in the city of Avignon for 21 days, and then continued south, back into France towards Provence. On October 19th, the king arrived in Aix-en-Provence to find the city in unrest. The population was infuriated with the local governor for being too lenient towards the Protestants, who were growing in numbers in the region. As a public statement, Charles ordered a tree called the Pine of Aiguille to be cut down, where many Huguenots had been lynched in the previous years. He then departed the city and headed south, towards the port of Toulon. He arrived there the 28th, and for the first time in his life, Charles saw the calm waters of the Mediterranean. That evening, the king feasted aboard a boat in what would have been the 16th century equivalent of a yacht party, and after dinner, he even got to play in the waves. He departed the city and arrived in Marseille on November 6th, and dined at the Chateau d'If off of the coast, the same chateau where several centuries later, the fictional Edmond Dante would be imprisoned in the novel The Count of Monte Cristo. Charles left the city on the 13th, heading west. On December 11th, the king crossed the Rhone River, the official boundary between Provence and Languedoc. He spent two days in the city of Nîmes, and then passed on to Montpellier. Some of you may remember this city, since the Catholics attempted to siege it back in episode 7. The king passed Christmas at Montpellier, and then left on the 30th. He continued west until the city of Carcassonne, where heavy snow prevented his journey for the next 14 days. By the 22nd, the snow had lightened up enough for him to continue on. Finally, on January 31st, the king arrived at the great city of Toulouse. He attended a lavish feast in the capital, where just a year and a half earlier, the Protestants of the town had barricaded themselves during the riots discussed in episode 6. There, he was confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church, along with his little brother, the future Henry III of France. After spending nearly two months in Toulouse, the entourage departed from the city and pushed northward into Guienne. On April 1st, the king arrived at Bordeaux, the capital of the region. He stayed there for over a month, where he celebrated Easter and presided over the local parliament. He departed in early May. From Bordeaux, the entourage actually headed south towards the Pyrenees, to Bayonne, near the Spanish border. There they met up with Philip II of Spain, and Catherine de' Medici saw the opportunity for a diplomatic mission. The two royal families socialized for two weeks, but little came of the meeting, except for King Philip's assistance that Catherine take a harsher policy towards the Huguenots. In July, they parted ways, and Charles continued on his grand tour, retracing his steps north. On August 21st, Charles arrived at Cognac, the hometown of his grandfather, King Francis I. Then, by midsummer, he arrived at La Rochelle. When he had made his grand entry into the town, he found a hostile welcoming. It was clear that the city was not excited to see its king, and the court quickly realized that Protestantism had penetrated deeper into the city than they previously expected. The entourage left La Rochelle on September 18th, and no king would return to the city 
until 1628, after Louis XIII fought a long and brutal siege. In mid-October, the expedition arrived in Nantes in Brittany. A month later, on November 20th, he arrived at Tours. For the final part of the tour, Charles pushed into the center of France, where he stayed at the city of Moulins for three months. On May 1st, 1566, the king finally returned to Paris. He had been absent two years, three months, and six days, having traveled 2,500 miles. What Charles had found on his journey was a kingdom still fractured and scarred by a year of war. But tensions would only continue to escalate over the next year, leading to a return to civil war in 1567. Next time, we will turn away from France and cross the Atlantic Ocean to the attempted Huguenot settlements in the New World. There, the Protestant colonists would face hunger, misery, and disease before meeting tragedy at the hands of the Spanish. Thank you for listening. My featured sources for this episode were The True Discourse of the Return of Havre de Grasse and the Obedience of the King, with the articles agreed upon by His Majesty and the English, published in the Havre, August 2nd, 1563. Brief Edict on the Present State and the Means of Fixing Troubles that One Could Fear to Follow, 